Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to us now and show compassion to us and help us to delight in your word as we look at it together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last time we looked at Matthew 4 together, which I admit was quite some time ago, roughly six weeks, I think, since I was looking at Matthew 4. We did, I did preach on Easter, but not on Matthew chapter 4 for that. But then, of course, I've been away. You've been very patient with me in coming back to Matthew's Gospel. And this will be our last sermon on Matthew's Gospel before we go somewhere else. I'll finish at the end of chapter 4. I did think about coming back from Turkey and just jumping somewhere else and whether anyone would notice that I didn't deal with the last verses of Matthew chapter 4. But you're all very astute, and I'm sure someone would say, you missed the last three verses of Matthew you, Joel, uh, before I jump somewhere else. But Lord willing, next week we'll go to the prophet Joel. Uh, So we'll go to the Old Testament and start looking at the prophet Joel together. Uh, But I thought I'd finish off, uh, do due diligence to Matthew's gospel and look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25 with you today. But when we were looking at Matthew chapter 4 previously, what did we see? What did we see last time? Well, we saw the initial followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus has been baptised by uh, John the Baptist, and then he went out into the desert and was tempted by the devil. And then we saw his initial ministry, and part of that ministry was calling initial followers to himself. And that's what we looked at last time from verses 18 through to verse 22. Who were those initial followers? Of the Lord Jesus? Well, we see that there was Simon called Peter in verse 18 and his brother Andrew. And not only Simon and Peter, uh, sorry, Simon and Andrew, but we also saw that it was John and James. In verse 21, we see going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They're in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. We see these initial followers of the Lord Jesus. But it is not only Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We now see in verses 23, 24 and 25 huge crowds of followers beginning to follow the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And we see that in verse 25 particularly. Large crowds from Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel, the Decapolis, which is over on the eastern side, uh, Jerusalem, uh, which is, of course, in the south, with, uh, that's the capital, but Judea is that region, and, of course, the region across the Jordan as well, followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why are so many people, these huge crowds, large crowds, following the Lord Jesus? Well, we see why in these verses that are before us, and that includes Jesus' teaching. They're following Jesus because of his teaching. We see that in verse 23. What is Jesus doing that would attract such crowds? We read in verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And that's what we'd seen earlier in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus was a great teacher and many people were following him. But it's not just for his teaching ministry that people are following Jesus, it's also for his healing ministry. And we see that in verse 23 and 24. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralysed, and he healed them. Why are people following the Lord Jesus? It's because of his teaching ministry, 
and his healing ministry. But why would people want to follow him for his teaching and for his healing? Well, it's because people knew their great need. They knew their great need. What's humanity looking for? What's humanity always looking for? They're looking for a king to follow. They're looking for someone to follow. We are designed to be citizens with a king. Incidentally, we know that very well for some of us who follow the news. In the last 24 hours, there's been a coronation. It's very interesting. I came back and I started work on this sermon and I mapped it out on Tuesday somewhat. Wednesday, it really solidifies. Thursday, I start to flesh it out. And it was the Thursday evening that I realised there was a coronation happening on Saturday. And uh, so in the, I didn't plan to speak on Jesus' kingship today. Uh, it just providentially occurred that way. But we are, I think, providentially in the last 24 hours, very conscious that much of humanity looks to have a king. We love to have a king over us. And why is that? Because we recognise that we are a needy, vulnerable human race. You're lying to yourself if you don't think that you are needy. Even a baby learns to cry moments after it is born. Cry for help. You look at a baby, infant, a child, of human race... It is so needy when it is born. It's not able to walk for almost 12 months. It needs others around it to help it. We're followers of somebody else from infancy. We're created by God to have a body and to have a soul, and both body and soul need a king to support them, need help. We need somebody to provide for us, both physically and also spiritually. And so it's not surprising then that we see crowds flocking to Jesus as he comes providing effective help for their bodies and also help for their souls. He's providing both physical and spiritual help. But was Jesus spiritually effective? Yes. By the Holy Spirit, his preaching was helpful. How was his preaching helpful? What was his preaching even about? Well, we see in the text that is before us. What does he preach on? We see in verse 17. He preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then in verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. What is Jesus teaching about? He's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's teaching that there is a kingdom. And his teaching is helpful for people who are looking for a king. And what do we see about his teaching? Well, in the coming chapters before us, we see his teaching in great detail. The Sermon on the Mount is given. The Sermon on the Mount is given in chapters 5, 6 and 7, very explicit about what his teaching is for the kingdom. And if you look at uh, just the very next verse in chapter 5, verse 2, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a kingdom thrust all through Jesus' teaching for people who are looking for a king. His teaching is effective because it's about the very matter that humanity is concerned for. And that is to have a king who will care for them. And you see that his teaching is effective, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, by the response of the people at the end of chapter 7. Chapter 7, he finishes his sermon. And in verse 28, if you turn a few pages over to page 962, if you have a church Bible, we read in verse 28, after he finishes his sermon in verse 27, we read, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. We see that his teaching had a profound impact upon people, that it was effective in helping their souls. He was feeding their minds, he was feeding their hearts by his teaching ministry. But was his ministry of helping people physically 
effective. His spiritual ministry was effective, but what about his physical ministry? Yes, we see very clearly here in chapter 4 that there was no illness that Jesus couldn't heal. In verse 23, we see that every disease and sickness that people had, he was able to heal. And then it lists different problems, physical problems that people had. And we read at the end of verse 24 that he healed them all. He was able to be effective in his healing. And so we see that his spiritual work is effective, his spiritual ministry is effective, but also his physical ministry is effective. And we see that played out for us in chapter 5, 6 and 7 with his teaching ministry. But then you look at chapter 8 and 9 and what do we see again and again in chapter 8 and 9? We see it fleshed out more incidents about what his healing ministry looked like. And you can read those later this afternoon if you like and look at how he was effective in his healing ministry in greater detail. But what about today? That was back then. Jesus was effective in teaching and in healing, in caring for both body and soul. But what about today? Do people still follow Jesus Christ as king? Yes. The answer is yes. And even larger crowds today follow Jesus as their king. Why? Well, humanity is still needy. Humanity is still needy. And Jesus still effectively meets our needs. How? Well, we see it in our own lives as Jesus meets our spiritual needs with his teaching about God's kingdom. Wonderfully, God has preserved the teachings of Jesus Christ in the scriptures so that we have them today and many, many people read what the Spirit has preserved for us over the centuries and guided holy men to write down years ago. Wonderfully, we have these things as food for our souls today. Many have embraced the teachings of Jesus as their king and are still fed in their souls. Their souls are crying out for teachings about the true king. And Jesus wonderfully teaches them in the scriptures today. But how else is Jesus effective today as a king? Well, we see it in our own lives as a king meets our physical needs. We recognise the teachings of the scripture tell us that all good things come from our king. The oxygen that we breathe, the shelter over our heads... The water we drink, the food we eat, is all from the king. And many people recognise that today. One of the common ways that we recognise it, that people are recognising the king, is by people bowing their heads before they eat and saying thank you to God, saying thank you to their king for providing effective means for their physical needs. But we can know that Jesus is effective far better than the crowds in Matthew chapter 4. That his ministry to our needs, both body and soul, is effective in a way that the crowds did not understand that day. And this is the reason why many, many, many more people than that day were following Jesus, follow Jesus today. Where do we see the king's greatest provision for the spiritual needs of his people? Where do we see the greatest provision for the spiritual needs of the citizens of the king. Well, it's in his death. It's in his death. And the people of that day, in Matthew chapter 4, did not know of his death, but we do today. The greatest provision that Jesus has ever given is by wearing the crown of thorns on his head and his cry, it is finished, at the cross. Why? What was Jesus doing to meet the needs of his people spiritually at the cross? Well, as Jesus died, as he was hanging on that cross and suffering, 
He was atoning for the sins of his people. What does atonement mean? It means dealing with sin, being that sacrifice that is needed in order to take two warring parties and make them one again, at one month. He's bringing people back into relationship with God. Jesus at the cross was dealing with the spiritual needs once and for all of his people. And what's the great spiritual need we have? Well, it's our sin and the guilt that we feel for our sin. The way that we know that we have done wrong, that we have broken the king's holy law. And we deserve eternal punishment in hell for our sin. But Jesus at the cross, as our king, is providing for that spiritual need. He's providing atonement so that the guilt is removed and the punishment is removed from us. And with King Jesus' triumphant resurrection after he died, he shows that he really provides not just for us spiritually, but also for us physically. We see here in this passage that Jesus provides for his people spiritually, but also physically. He cares about the body as well. And Jesus has also shown his ability his power to effectively provide for our physical needs. How? By his resurrection from the grave, three days after he died. Why is this the greatest provision that he has shown? Well, it's because he is dealing with our great, greatest physical problem. What is that? Death. What did King Jesus do for us? He rose from the grave to show that he has power over our greatest physical problem which is death, that our bodies are dying and he has a way to overcome death. He rose with a resurrection body and he promises to give that resurrection body same type of resurrection body to all his citizens. And how is that helpful for us? Well, that resurrection body will be like his resurrection body, which will never experience suffering, pain, illness, sickness, or even death itself. It's so wonderful that in the kingdom of God, in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will never have to be carried like people were carried to Jesus long ago. Why? Because we will never have suffering of severe pain, demon possession, seizures, paralysis. These things are not going to be part of the new kingdom, in the new, king, in the new heavens and the new earth because we will have resurrection bodies. He has provided perfectly both body and soul for both needs of body and soul by his death and by his resurrection. And that is why many people follow King Jesus today. That is why people are following Christ Jesus and calling themselves Christian is because they know that he provides perfectly as no other king can, not just spiritually, but also physically. He meets our cry for forgiveness in our spirits, by the removal of guilt for sin, and he also meets the cry of our bodies for salvation from the grave. Jesus truly is the king. He's truly the son of man that is described in Daniel chapter 7, as we heard before, who has an everlasting kingdom, who has all authority and power. So my question then for you this morning is, who are you following? Who are you following? You were designed as weak and vulnerable. So you will follow someone. Even from a young age, you've been following someone. Who could it be? It could be a family member, if you're very young. 
could be some teacher or guru that you think has the wisdom to help you, both body and soul. It could be a certain politician. It could be an actual king, not a prime minister, not a president. It may be a king that you are thinking is going to solve our spiritual and physical problems. Or maybe it's another religious leader. Who are you following? You may say, I'm not following anyone. Well, you may have claimed to turn to your own way, but that really is Satan's way. You see that from the beginning, that those who follow their own way are really just following Satan and he's leading you away from God. So who are you following? And how is it working out for you if it's not King Jesus? How is it working out for you? Do you feel spiritually and physically satisfied? That your spiritual needs are satisfied and that your physical needs are satisfied? Will your king, the one that you are following, you may not call him a king, but the one that you are following for all your help in your great times of need, will he help you out of the grave? Will he help you overcome death itself? Maybe you've started following Jesus. Maybe you recognise the failures of all other kings, of all other leaders. Maybe you've started following Jesus, but are you really following Jesus? We see many people here following Jesus. We read that at the end of verse 25. All these regions described, and it says they followed him. But then what do we see as we continue to work through a gospel together? We see that many in the crowd don't continue to follow Jesus, that they're not really following him. And even in the very next verse, There's a distinction made between the crowd and those who are truly Christ's disciples. We see in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, There's a crowd, and then there's the disciples. That there are people who will follow Jesus in some way, but then there are clearly those who are all in, those who are truly disciples of Jesus. And we see this again and again in life. I've seen it in my time as a pastor, that there are people who come and they say they're following Jesus. But in time, they go. My wife and I were actually talking this week. She raised it about how she can't quite remember the names of certain people who did come. She can remember characteristics of them. She said, do you remember what that person's name was? And we can't. It's a few years ago. They came for a certain amount of time. They may have even come to Bible study for a time. But in time, they left. Now, they may have left to go to another church, and that's okay. But I fear that many of them were following Jesus and now have stopped following Jesus altogether. And I do know some of those who have since renounced Christ altogether and are not interested in him. Will you be one of those? You're here today. You may claim to be following Jesus, but will you stop one day? And not just stop coming to Dremoyne Baptist, but stop following Christ as king? Will there be something that King Jesus does that is too much for you and will cause you to stop following him? As you learn more about Jesus, there'll be something that grabs you in such a way and you say, I don't want him as king of my life. Just as many will follow a politician for a time, but gradually they think, no, I'm going to vote for somebody else next election. I'm not going to vote that person that I voted in last time. I'm not going to vote them back in again. Is that going to be you with Christ Jesus? Well, what could it be that Jesus will raise one day with you? 
that will cause you to reject him? How can you know that you're truly following Christ? That there's nothing that Jesus can say that will cause you to reject him? What's the crucial thing? What's the separating factor? Well, John, in John's Gospel, John the Apostle, shows us the great test. He shows us the great test as to whether we will truly follow Christ Jesus in everything. How does he show us this? Well, by showing us when King Jesus starts teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Turn with me to page 1057 if you have a church Bible, which is uh, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, page 1057. John chapter 6 is about Jesus feeding the 5,000 at the beginning and then people following him. Why? Well, it looks like a lot of them were following him for the food that he would provide. Here's a king, yes, he gives us free food, we'll follow him wherever he goes. But then Jesus starts to teach the crowd. They seem to be questioning him and asking him to provide food for them again. But I'll pick it up in verse 51. Verse 51, page 1057, John chapter 6, verse 51, where Jesus is teaching and people have already started to grumble about him back in verse 41. But we read from verse 51, where Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give you for the life of the world. Jesus teaches very clearly that he is the living bread. And then what do we read in verse 52? Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. This large crowd started with 5,000 men plus women and kids and probably has gathered a few more since. They argue amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then we read Jesus' response in verse 53. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, that same region that we hear about in Matthew chapter 4 that he was teaching in in Galilee. And then what do we read? Verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And then what do we read in verse 66? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The great separating factor was his teaching about drinking his blood and eating his flesh, and many couldn't stomach it, so to speak, and no longer followed him. And then what do we read even here in the later verses of this chapter? Verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. 
Who are the 12? Well, it includes Peter and Andrew and James and John, those initial followers that we saw back in Matthew chapter 4. He asked them, are you going to leave because I'm starting to speak about flesh and blood and eating and drinking those? And what do we read? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's staying. But then what do we read in verse 70? Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Even one of the twelve was not one of Christ's disciples. He was not willing, Judas was not willing, to eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood. And here we see the great teaching then, the great separating factor that King Jesus raises and many people who are following him show that they're not true followers of him because they refuse to eat his flesh and drink his blood. But what does that mean then? What does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? It sounds awful. It sounds cannibalistic. What does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Well, it means that we are trusting in Christ Jesus' body and blood for the provision for our souls and our bodies for eternity? Will we trust in Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of sins? That's what Jesus is saying. Will you trust that I died in your place? This is the greatest test. Why? Because this is the greatest provision, as I said before, for our physical needs and our spiritual needs. It's all provided by Jesus' death at the cross and his resurrection. His body and blood are what effectively removes our sins takes away our guilt, takes away our punishment and enables us to have eternal life in his name. What are many people happy to do? Many people are happy for Jesus to tickle their ears with teaching about the kingdom. There are many people who will say, the Sermon on the Mount, wonderful. Love it. Love to dwell on the teachings that are there. Love your neighbour as yourself. Wonderful teaching. That's how we should live in this world. We should follow the way of the Sermon on the Mount. People are happy to have Jesus' spiritual help in his teaching. What else are people happy to do? They're happy to receive good things from Jesus, from them physically. They're happy to experience food, clothing, shelter, these kinds of things, oxygen for their lungs, but also healing. They're quite happy for Jesus to take away their cancer, to take away their physical problems, yes, But many are not happy to eat his flesh and drink his blood, to have him forgive their sins and give them eternal life in heaven itself. Why? Well, they're too proud to see the sickness of sin, too proud to see that they have guilt before God and that they need it to be dealt with, that their soul has a problem with sin and their body has a problem with sin by the way that they are dying. What suffering do you need to experience in order to eat the king's blood, eat the king's flesh and drink his blood? If you're a follower of Christ Jesus, but as I speak to you about your sin and something grates in your heart, what will it take? What suffering do you need to experience before you will admit that you have a guilt problem and you have a physical problem, you have a dying body because of your sin? What suffering do you need to experience? Do you need to experience death itself before you will admit that you have a problem? 
Well, if that's the case, it'll be too late. There's no hope. In the grave, after the grave, there is no hope. Jesus asked Peter so many years ago, you do not want to leave too, do you? May it be that you today, if you've never truly followed Jesus before, may you be one who says along with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Accept his teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Look to him for the forgiveness of sins and truly follow him, not just for his lovely teaching, not just for his healing and his daily provision, but for his salvation, for your soul and your body for eternity. And if we are following Jesus... What should we do? If you look at this text in John chapter 6 and you see, yes, I agree. I have eaten your flesh and I've drunk your blood. Whatever it takes, Lord Jesus, in order for my soul to be forgiven and to have eternal life. I am trusting in you, Lord Jesus, your body and and blood given for me. What should you do? Well, we should all keep following Jesus especially to the cross. We should keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What's that look like? What's it look like to keep following him? Well, it means many things, including not giving way to doubts and to following someone else. Why do I need to say this? Well, sadly, we're an adulterous people. We're like people who get married and then still have an eye for other people. Too often... We're following Jesus, we're married to him, but we still have an eye for others and we listen to the doubts and we start to feel the temptation to follow someone else, at least in part. But gradually there may be the temptation to reject Jesus altogether. If we're a Christian, a true Christian, we should be keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and ignoring the others the others that are there who promise good things to us but fail to deliver. It's actually interesting, the older I get, the less concern I have for politics. It's probably because I've seen so many politicians now come and go since I've been voting since I'm 18, and they make promises and then they fail to deliver on those promises or they're there for a three-year term and then they're gone and you have to get to know a new politician And even with Queen Elizabeth, she is gone now. And now we have King Charles. And so as I get older, the less I'm interested in politicians solving the problems of our society, and the more I just concentrate on looking to Jesus and praying to him for the help that we need and the provision that we need and looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. There's a danger for us as Christians to look to others instead of to Christ. But if we, he is our king, we should be looking to him. There's a danger even in following pastors. We expect a pastor sometimes to be our king and to provide for us physically and to provide for us spiritually instead of Christ. But no pastor can provide for us spiritually and physically in the way that King Jesus can. We've got to be careful about resting in anyone other than Jesus Christ. So let us keep our eyes fixed on King Jesus, his death and his resurrection, 
Those in particular. Why? Because there all our needs are met. Even if he doesn't provide for us physically today, and he doesn't provide for us, we feel spiritually today in his teachings, and we feel low and spiritually dead. We can look to him and his cross and the resurrection that is to come and know that everything will be okay. So let us rejoice in our king by the Spirit's power, day by day, rejoicing that we have a king who is effective in providing for our physical needs but also for our spiritual needs. Let us be ones who rejoice in him with singing, singing hymns like the one that we're about to sing. Turn with me in your bulletins to our last hymn, a hymn that is written perfectly for us as ones who follow the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingship, which reads in verse 1, Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. Crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands and side. Rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends each burning eyes at mysteries so bright. Even the angels can't really look at the Lord Jesus and his wounds, but we can. Crown him the Lord of peace, whose power a scepter sways. From pole to pole that wars may cease, and all be prayer and praise. His reign shall know no end, and round his pierced feet fair flowers of paradise extend, their fragrance ever sweet. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me, thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. That's what we should be doing, rejoicing and singing in King Jesus if we are followers of him. So let's pray and then sing these marvellous words together. Lord Jesus, we praise you as our King. We come before you and give you honour and glory that you deserve, even as we confess that we are needy people. And Lord, we confess that foolishly we've often followed other kings instead of yourself. But we thank you for showing us your power to provide for our souls and our bodies by your death and resurrection. We ask that you would help us to keep following you as our king with joy and to rejoice in you with singing. And Lord, if there is anyone here who is not following you as king, Lord, we ask that you would show them their needs, both spiritual and physical and then show them your provision for those needs, your effective provision, so they begin to follow you today. And we pray this in your name. Amen.